0: It was. <laughs> that does seem to be a theme through all this podcast. I don't know what you mean, Don. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Welcome again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is, conf- is as confused by the latest health study as I am by self-checkout machines at the grocery store. Can you guys deal with those? Or the parking meters in Medford, uh, Massachusetts. I can't. Any of those things. What is going on with any more these days? The whole. What? Sorry. (laughs) Lost me there. I'm Matt Fox. I am professor of epidemiology and global health here at uh, the Boston University School of Public Health. And I am in the studio with Dawn Thea and Chris Gill from the Department of Global Health. Hey, Matt. Howdy. (laughs) And we are here in the Boston University Godly Studio. So, guys. How do you feel about exchanging things? Do you guys return things when you buy them online? And no, I like
0: to simply dxs. De- 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 oh. I don't like getting anything in return. I just want how to get do rid you, of stuff. Uh,
1: how do you feel about populations? You like them? Oh yeah. And uh, I see where this. How do you going feel about there. health? You into that? I'm into that because I have a place where you can get all three, which is the Population Health Exchange. That is Boston University School of Public Health Resource Hub for Lifelong Learning. Find out more. At www.pophealthex.org where you will find this podcast as well as many other population health learning programs and tools it's kind of like a giant consignment store it's kind of like a giant consignment store but much much better so and as a reminder to all of our uh, listeners if you could go onto itunes or any other major podcast site and give us a rating give us a review we would really appreciate that because it would help people to find us So now onto the show. So today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we are going to look at a study which looked at the effects of a vaccine that was, I'm going to say designed to prevent tuberculosis, but I don't know if it was specifically designed for that, but a a vaccine that is used for tuberculosis, whether that can help uh, with type 1 diabetes. Then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we're going to talk about something called the Loss of Confidence Project. And then in our third segment, which is our Amazing and Amusing, we will get into some things that have us chuckling to ourselves, or Don will say something so ridiculous that we have to spend hours and hours editing it out, because I simply cannot continue. Before we do, I want to say one uh, uh, thank you to all the people. I was at the Society for Epidemiologic Research meeting a couple weeks back, and I got a lot of people who came up to me and said that they really uh, enjoy the show. So to those of you who are out there listening, we want to say we really appreciate it, please Continue to give us your feedback. So you let's. Got, you got no bad feedback. I, I'm not going to say I got none. <laughs> Do tell. But uh, that's more of an off the air kind of thing. Um, so let's get into segment one. So in segment one, we are going to talk about an article that looks at whether or not a vaccine that is used in much of the world, though we don't use it here in the United States, to prevent tuberculosis, can be used to treat type one diabetes. This was a study which is published in a journal that I didn't really know, which is NPJ, Nature Partner Journals Vaccines, NPJ Vaccines. Uh, and the first author, Don, you're going to have to help me out with this one because I can't pronounce it. You're on your own. Uh, W.M. Kutriber? Kutriber. Kutriber yeah. let's say, uh, of the Immunology Laboratories at, at Mass General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. The study was titled Long-Term Reduction in Hyperglycemia in Advanced Type 1 Diabetes, the Value of induced aerobic glycosis with BCG... Glycolysis. Glycolysis with BCG vaccination. So we need a big board mm-hmm. of all the different words that I have butchered over the course of this podcast, and then I could just keep recycling. So let me give you some of the headlines on this one. So Breitbart News, our favorite... Oh, please. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I did that for you. Oh. Breitbart says... Genetic vaccine reverses effect of type one diabetes. Time huh. magazine says it's there's not a genetic. It's vaccine. not a genetic vaccine, <laughs> so they got they that get pretty that wrong. From? <laughs> Gene- sorry, did I say genetic? You did, you did. Sorry, generic. Oh, oh, generic. I wouldn't sorry. say it's a
2: generic vaccine either, but okay, whatever.
1: Time magazine says there's hope for a vaccine to prevent type one diabetes. Fortune says tuberculosis vaccine could reverse type one diabetes. Studies show. Uh, NBC News says can a TB vaccine help treat diabetes? And uh, Newsweek says, "Type one diabetes, tuberculosis vaccine could offer quote major advancement end quote in treatment." So there you go. So Don, let me uh, let me start with you as always. Can you explain this in language that I can understand? Oy. As my mother would always say in relation to me talking to her about computers, can you explain this to, in language that I can understand? Because this was a this was of all the studies we have ever done. The most complicated one I have ever encountered.
0: Yeah, this was this was a complicated one. Um, it is different than a lot of the studies that we've covered before because it doesn't have a, a very heavy epidemiologic component. It's really a combination of two studies. One, ha- it's got a clinical part, and it's got a laboratory part. But let me let me step back from that and set the stage a little bit. We, th- we were really excited about this study because um, it it really is a study that proposed a complete paradigm shift in, t- in two respects. One was that there was a vaccine that could potentially have an effect on type 1 diabetes and that the effect that they thought they were looking for, the, the reason for the effect that they observed that they that they were looking for ended up not being the effect that they um, had anticipated. And it took them in a different direction and it, t- it brought them to a conclusion that was completely um, unexpected. Mm-hmm. So it's okay. sort of a mystery story. But sure. before I start, let me let me distinguish for the listener. There's type 1 diabetes, which is the kind of diabetes that um, is insulin dependent. And type 2 diabetes is a kind of diabetes that is not necessarily in- insulin dependent. And second is more associated with being overweight. The former is more associated with people that get diabetes when they're young. So it's a lack of insulin. So and we're talking about type 1 diabetes here? In this study, we're talking about type 1 diabetes. Let me also talk about BCG. BCG is a vaccine, Matt, as you said, used to be used in the United States, but hasn't been since about the 1980s. Um, likewise, in Europe, it was sort of phased out in the, in the mid-80s. It was originally developed for tuberculosis, but has found to be, has been found to be um, not as, um, as um, efficacious against uh, tuberculosis as previously thought. And because tuberculosis became less of a problem in the developed world, it was sort of phased out. That said, there has been a tremendous amount of work in the last 10 years, and this is the literature that I wasn't really familiar with, in the last 10 years about the effect of BCG in other settings. And to, to not get into too much detail, the findings are really quite intriguing. Um, there's, a, there's a study that was done a couple of years ago in Denmark, which seemed to indicate that if children got this vaccine when they were young, um, either um, in first grade or before, that when they followed them into middle age and later middle age, they determined that there was a lower all-cause mortality for reasons that are not completely clear. They um, also um, identified that um, people who get this vaccine seem to have um, improvements in multiple sclerosis. And there's some evidence to suggest that same thing is true with rheumatoid arthritis. And the idea was that it was um, in part due to uh, the vaccine's effect on decreasing a state of autoimmunity, where the immune system's kind of revved up. They've also noticed that animals injected with BCG have, um, have been shown to have resistance to certain infections, such as staph aureus, uh, herpes, salmonella, listeria, um, and that um, there is some suggestion that there is also this mortality effect in humans. Now, how do they get to diabetes? There's been laboratory work that um, on mice that have, um, in which they induce diabetes, that BCG seems to, in fact, um, decrease the the mice's um, need for insulin, and their their theory was that the BCG vaccine altered the immune system such that the mice were were uh, who were in a state of autoimmunity where their immune system was sort of eating up the, the cells that produce insulin the islet cells um, were no longer under attack after the vaccine and the mice could regenerate those cells so they could um, they could produce insulin again. so they asked the question can we demonstrate that in humans and they, um, they uh, happened to also be involved in a study from um, 2000, uh, many, a number of years ago, I can't remember exactly when the first study was, where they gave two doses of BCG to um, type 1 diabetics and they looked at the effect over about, I think it was 20 weeks and they didn't see any effect and they just, Kind of forgot about that, but kept effect in terms of in terms of blood sugar, blood sugar, yeah. And the way they're measuring the blood sugar is they're looking at something called um, hemoglobin A1C, which is which is really kind of caramelized hemoglobin in your body. If your blood sugar is up for a long period of time, your hemoglobin becomes caramelized, and that's reflected in this measure. The higher it is, the worse your hyperglycemic control is. And so they, they 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 didn't see anything early on, but when they came back and looked at these same people, three and five years later, they noticed that their blood sugar was in better control. Now, these are type 1 diabetics, so they're getting insulin, and their insulin is being um, controlled by themselves. But when they looked at this group who had gotten BCG previously and compared it to a group that had gotten a placebo, albeit a small group, and a group that had that were just type one diabetics who were normally um, treating their own disease, they found that there was a substantial difference between 10 and 20 percent improvement in that that hemoglobin A1c measure. Um, and so they thought, all right, well, this is interesting. Let's figure out whether it's the same mechanism in humans as it is in mice. And so they did a whole bunch of bench. Um, Experiments, and what the first thing that I did is I tried to find out whether the 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 humans who had gotten BCG were now making insulin that they previously had not been making, and the one laboratory measure um, to look at that, which is a little piece of a of, of a protein that's cleaved off the insulin molecule as it's produced by the by the the pancreas in humans, should go up if their islets are being reconstituted. They looked for that, they didn't find it. So that kind of ruled out the idea that The BCG had induced their pancreas to now produce insulin. Mm -hmm. Scratched their heads a little bit. They couldn't really quite figure it out. And then this is where the the paper gets really complicated, and they looked at a whole bunch of different things. But to kind of make a long story short, what they did is that they looked at the white blood cells that they took from these different groups, um, the the type 1 diabetics who had gotten the vaccine, the ones who had gotten a placebo, and the ones who got neither, um, and they, they started to ask questions about how do these white blood cells handle glucose? And what they did was that they established the fact that these white blood cells handle glucose differently. And this is three and five years after they got these two doses of BCG. They handle glucose differently. The way normal people handle glucose is through a process that's highly efficient, takes the glucose molecule and makes it into energy Packets, which is which is absolutely fundamental and critical for all human, all mammalian life, really almost all life. Um, and and the the way we do it is a highly efficient um, process called oxidative phosphorylation. And when they asked at the bench whether in fact these cells are still generating energy using glucose to generate energy in the same way, they found that in fact they weren't. What they were doing was that they were using an alternative pathway. Of generating energy, which is slightly less efficient than the normal way, and because it's less efficient, it requires more glucose. So mm. this new this new means of producing um, energy that was seemingly induced by this BCG is is called aerobic glycolysis. Hence, Ana- anaerobic. anaerobic aerobic glycolysis. It's Yeah, no, it's aerobic glycolysis, glycolysis, glycolysis because it's using oxygen. So it's the kind of, I mean, it would be anaerobic glycolysis in the absence of a sufficient amount of oxygen, but because it is, there is a, a sufficient amount of oxygen, it's aerobic glycolysis, which is more efficient than anaerobic. Anaerobic is really inefficient, which is why you get the buildup of lactic acid and why your muscles burn when you don't, you know, when you exercise too much. So... There seem to have been. They seem to show that there is this permanent transfer of energy utilization, or glucose utilization, to produce energy. Um, it sort of takes it out of the mitochondria, which is the is the part of the cell, it's an organelle of the cell that's the efficient place where oxidative phosphorylation happens, and and um, transported it into sort of the cytosol, sort of the the, the the regular fluid in the cell outside of the mitochondria. And the end result is that, in essence, the entire system is using glucose less efficiently, therefore consuming more yeah. glucose, pulling more glucose out of the blood, using it in the cell in a less efficient way to generate the same amount of energy. So it's sort of like almost down-regulating the body's efficiency in... Using energy, and what it does is it, it it takes more glucose out of the blood, sticks it in the cells um, to to generate to generate um, energy.
1: Uh, it, that is, it sounds completely fascinating. It, it's a they complete were...
0: paradigm shift in our understanding of ba- like basic biochemistry. I mean, Chris and I had to go back to the biochemistry tables and manuals and say is this really happening? This is against the central dogma of what we learned in school. It's it's really very, very remarkable.
1: There are a lot of words in here I don't understand, a lot of things that you said that uh, were outside of my understanding. Whenever I see the word Krebs cycle, I assume this is a paper that I cannot read. But I can say that I got through it enough to get that, the sort of the general premise that essentially we've got the vaccine is inducing something to happen in the body that is changing the way that the body uses glucose, I guess what you're saying, Um, More efficiently, so therefore consuming more, therefore emptying the blood. Which essentially leads to disease control. Right. Okay. Chris. Chris. What's Right, your, right. What's, no, what's your I, I, I loved having to go back it. and study the Krebs cycle again. I'm sure you um, did.
2: Which, uh, I guess, how many times in our lives have we done that? Was, I'm thinking back to high school biology, college biology, medical school. I only studied it just Daughter's before high school biology.
0: <laughs> I, <laughs> just before the exam when I had to That's cram like, for it. it. I, was I don't ever to this remember stuff. this.
2: I was just thrilled that I remembered that there was such a thing as the pentose phosphate shunt. Okay. Um, and I did not realize... Oh, you're, you're this showing is, off now, Chris. Yeah, I, you I really know, are. looking at the creation of phosphoribose Okay, now, stop! stop, stop, stop. You're, you're, you're beyond me. Go
1: give us give us your critique I was, here. I thought is this was
2: is a, fac- a, a fascinating study. I mean, it, it, you know, I'll, I'll, we'll we'll say right up front that this is this is definitely one of the ones where I think we're you know I'm going to come up with and say the more researchers is needed, and they need a
1: bigger follow-on study. Oh,
0: absolutely.
2: Uh, I mean, because the numbers that they're talking about who who they followed for these five or eight years was really a very small number. They,
1: how, how, how small are we talking? Let's get into well, it.
2: Well, they started with 52, and then they were somewhat vague about how they did the randomization, but then when they finally got down to the the, the the, the long term, they' down to six and six, which is what we need. Six people and six people.
1: I thought it was eight and eight, but fair enough. It's a very small number. We'll
2: take the average and say it was seven, but it was a real small number. It's a
1: real small number. Um, such and that so, I'm... you know,
2: if we were approaching this as a traditional epidemiologic study, we would be hammering in the nails right and left here. Yeah. But this is not really an epidemiologic study. This is really a biochemistry study, which in which there was a, a human intervention. And so I, th- I think the, the way we think about this changes a little bit because so much of the evidence rests on the biochemistry and the immunology that they're trying to present. And, and, and Don, I thought you did a, a fantastic job explaining that. Thanks, Chris. Um, I guess I would just like to, to recapitulate that they were that the authors went into this with three theories about how this the BCG insulin or excuse me you know sugar reduction might work. One is that the the BCG in some way renders the pancreas able to regenerate its islet cells and create more insulin. And as Don said, they looked at C-reactive peptides. Uh, and they did not find that after stimulating the insulin
0: that there was insulin being secreted by the pancreas. That's the little piece that breaks off of the insulin as it's being produced in the pancreas, and that you can measure. You you couldn't measure the regular insulin because the stuff that they take in the needle is identical to the stuff that their pancreas makes. So you have to look at the byproduct. Exactly.
2: So they have to look at the C-peptide instead. So that's a, a, a marker that this is human-derived insulin. And it wasn't coming out, or at least it was not coming out in very appreciable numbers. So the hypothesis, number one, wrong. It's not that the, the pancreas has regrown in the way that the mouse pancreas did. So the second hypothesis is that perhaps the insulin that's there is just being more efficiently used. And so then they went through a series of, of experiments to look for markers of increased utilize, uh, efficiency of of insulin effect and they were able to reject that as well. So then the third hypothesis really by default is other and that's where it really got interested and they, they looked into well what could be other ways in which the metabolism of glucose is altered and that's where they got into this this aerobic excuse me glycolysis and the use of these accessory pathways and they were able to show that you know there was a significant down regulation of the downstream utilization of the Krebs cycle which is the oxidative phosphorylation, so Crap, it's not so going to cool. the mitochondria. It's not being turned into multiple ATPs. It's instead staying in the cytosol and being quickly turned into lactate and other byproducts of glycolysis. Um, and in parallel, they saw an increased rate of lactate, saying that indeed there is more glycolysis going on. And then they also looked at this pentose shunt, which is a side pathway, biochemical pathway, coming off the main one, and they looked at multiple genes in that and found that those products were also being upregulated, indicating that indeed sugar was
0: being chewed up through this alternative pathway. Yeah, I thought that was particularly elegant because they actually queried the genome and they said, are the genes responsible for this um, actually working harder? Right, and, and they were able to, to isolate all of the individual genes that would have been correlated with that switch and said, yes, they are working harder. And therefore, this, this, this is a consistent biological phenomenon. And they did that in
2: two ways, which I thought were really sort of rigorous. One was to look at these you know you the genes on dna are often tagged by methyl molecules which are basically like little on off switches that that say stop making this gene whatever it is this protein whatever it is and they found that the methylation was reduced, indicating that the genes were upregulating. Okay, so cool. It was so cool. And then they looked to see. I say, have never okay, seen the two of you so excited. <laughs> so the methylation, so the off switches have been removed to the on function now, and so we're making more of these genes. But can we prove that these genes are actually being expressed? And so they looked. Then looked at the mRNA, the 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 ribonucleic acids that's being messenger RNAs that are being created by this. Boom. And those went up too. So it's like Same absolutely, yeah. they are doing it. They are creating more of these enzymes that are involved in the pentose. And the in glycolysis it was so it was very very elegantly done in terms of the basic science right. I thought I was right. I was really like taken by this I thought it was fascinating I thought it was hard to read and it made me sort of gulp and bite my tongue and go wow I've I forgot a lot of basic biochemistry but it, it was still all there yeah you
0: know, and it was really interesting because because the effect didn't seem to occur until three or five years later right which is weird but which is really it makes weird makes
2: sense because BCG is such a weird vaccine and it does not work the way Most vaccines Now, frankly, we
1: don't understand how it works. We really don't. We really don't. I feel like it's important for the listener to know that the way we're set up in the studio is Don and I are sitting across from each other with Chris in the middle. And the reason why you normally hear Chris's voice disappear is because he keeps turning his head away from the mic. And you will notice on that last segment... His voice didn't change at all. He was just talking directly to Don cuz I didn't get half of it. <laughs> Fair enough, man. Let me let me also Let me, also,
0: <laughs> let me...
2: <laughs> Can we get back to the Phosphoribos, please? No! That was so cool. Can I can I Can I the
1: pyramidine? Can I can I give my uh my two cents here? Which is not much because I, I... You understood the first three paragraphs? I understood the first three paragraphs. I First of all, this is another one of those nature journals where the methods are at the end, which I why don't... Haven't you learned by now? I, you have to go to the end I of it. I don't get why you would do that. It's like a mystery novel. But the methods themselves are... Um, they're <laughs> hard to follow. Not well explained. And I don't just mean that they are lab-based and therefore they're hard to follow. It's hard to follow the numbers. Where do these people come from? It's the clinical how many part that them? was hard to follow, right? Yeah. And it, it's, it strikes me that when I was reading this, that I was thinking to myself, this is really a lab study in a lot of ways. This was done in, in humans. There was a human component to it. But a lot of this was done in the lab, and it wasn't done, oh, I always get confused, in vivo, in vitro. Which one was? Vivo. In vivo. And because of that, I feel like I'm supposed to view this with a different lens that I'm not supposed to interpret it the way that I would interpret an epi study. And yet it strikes me as I still have to interpret this the way you interpret an epi study, largely because they make statements in here that I think are incompatible with this being a lab only study. Things like, you know, this, this, this should be something that we um, should be trying out in, in type two diabetes. Don't we need evidence that it really truly works in type one diabetes first? Um, You know, it's, it's, Interesting, it's fascinating, but we're we're talking about a study in really in eight people. In mm-hmm. eight people that I don't really understand where they came from. It might have been 14, but... Uh, oh, sorry, 16. Right, whatever. Eight, it's eight. a very small number. It's a very small number. They were randomized to an intervention in a placebo, but with mm-hmm. that many people, you really don't get much of a benefit to the randomization. Um, and the small number followed up for eight years is really, you know, I mean... It, the eight years is impressive. the 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 small number makes it very hard for me to say that these benefits, particularly these benefits that didn't appear for three years until after the the BCG vaccination, yeah. hard for me to know exactly what I, what to make of this.
2: I totally agree with you, Matt. And and actually, I um I have a, a very close friend uh, whose name is Chris. Uh, uh, hello, Chris, if you're listening, uh, who's a type 1 diabetic. And we were talking about this paper over the weekend. And he's, you know, he said, like, well, what I would really like to know as a type 1 diabetic is, do they provide any data about the decreased use of insulin? Because if their sugars right. are normalizing, you would expect the insulin demand to go down. And actually, they don't present those data that I could find anywhere in here. Um, which struck me as sort of like, you know, another example of what you're saying, that if this was a traditional epi study where we're really looking at clinical outcomes, that it would be absolutely one of the things that would be frustrating center as a surrogate marker of diabetes, you know, uh, control, Yep. Um, you know, are you, re- are you reducing your need for a, endo- exogenous insulin? Yeah. And they don't present that, which seemed to me like, you know, what a pity because that would be, that seems so obvious.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it just, it, this strikes me as a proof of concept study, not a, yeah. a, a conclusive study. And I mean, and there is a statement in here that says the health benefits of the BCG vaccine reported here. So not the, the general benefits that we might postulator out there. The health benefits of the BCG vaccine reported here suggest reconsideration of vaccine policy in areas of the world without endemic TB. That's a bit bold. Yeah, really? That a bit much. That's no. a bit bold. I mean, let's, let's I'm uncomfortable with one large observational or, or intervention study determining policy. We have a study here of, of eight 16 let's say people 12 to 14 12 to 16 okay somewhere a very small study that i don't really truly understand the selection forces that were going on and how everybody got into the study at the end uh you know i'm just i'm just not there as fascinated as i was um i also it, it part of it seemed too good to be true so there is a lot of language in here that i just am so Surprised that I don't normally read. So when they were talking about BCG vaccine in the introduction, so they weren't specifically talking about type one diabetes necessarily, although they were a little bit. They say uh, that BCG vaccine halts MS, multiple sclerosis halts. Is that I mean I,
0: I haven't looked at that literature, but but they cited several articles, and it does seem to have an effect.
1: An effect would suggest that it you know it reduces or probability, but this but says if, halt, but if it halts, halts it, it, we the progression would be doing it everywhere. The
0: Halts the progression. It
1: implies that it's universal. They also say uh, there are benefits to low birth weight infants, independent of TB. Uh, oh, sorry. And in mice, it permanently cures type one diabetes. In permanently mice, permanently cures. Mice. Yeah. That, yeah. That sounds like it yeah, works no, that's every
0: re- single time. Well, I don't know about every single time, but that's the regeneration of the
1: of the pancreas in the in yeah. the, the mice. No, I just it, it just strikes me as truly but true, and then in, too good to be true, and then in this study, um, they found the same thing. In that they said, well, I I don't. No, but they say um, that the uh, lowering of blood sugars to a normal range near normal was maintained uh, for the next five years. So it drops, uh, goes back to normal after roughly three years and stays there for the rest of the time. It achieved these lower blood sugars uniformly in all treated subjects. I mean... We all just six of them. Well, all, right. or eight or whatever it is. But I'm just mm-hmm. saying, like even then, I'm just surprised it's every single one of them that mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. what what treatments do we have that work universally? Yeah, yeah, nothing, uh, uh, nothing. Yeah, nothing. I, I, you know, yeah, and and vaccines work most of the time and most people. But I'm just
0: yeah. I mean, I, I it think just, it's no. I think you're right, Matt, and I think it's an it's an interesting. Um, uh, sort of offshoot of an immunology lab, you know a very sure. very well respected immunology lab and bench scientists who are trying to um, anneal themselves with an ongoing clinical trial with limited numbers ad- admittedly and you know, maybe next time when they when they do it they'll <laughs> they'll do it in a more c- comprehensive way and they will then be able to f- uh, at least provide the information to the reader from the clinical standpoint in terms of what's going on. I, I also I, 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 I do have to agree that, Um, this could potentially be really important in type 2 diabetes Mm. as opposed to type 1 diabetes because it it could, in fact, um, mitigate the need for any kind of a treatment whatsoever because that's not a state of, of lack of insulin. This does not this this intervention does not address lack of insulin. Yep. It addresses how the cells utilize glucose. And that's essentially what happens in type 2 diabetes, because the cells become resistant to insulin and they're much less efficient at being able to use glucose in mm-hmm. the in the in the cells.
1: So so can I end with because we'll, we'll move on uh, with just one question, which is this was a this was a mechanistic study at, at heart. I mean, they were really trying to figure out not just does this work, but how does it work? And the question that I have for you guys is. As fascinating as that is, and I can understand absolutely why we'd want to know that, because that could lead us down all kinds of different pathways. Do we need to know that? Is it necessary? In other words, could we go out and just do – I mean, BCG is a vaccine that is approved for use in much of the world. Is there any reason why you couldn't just go out there and do a trial of, say, type 2 diabetes and see if it works? And maybe we never actually understand exactly why it works, but it works – that we would be sure, interested. Yeah, sure, in you, you certainly mm-hmm.
0: could do it, but I think it—it's it, kind of the Renaissance of BCG in the last ten years. Looking at all of these different groups, whether it's overall mortality or low birth weight mortality or multiple sclerosis, kind of kind of um, implies that there is some overarching. Um, mechanism. And I think it's, it's really, really important to get a handle on what that overlying uh, overarching mechanism might be. And this, I think, adds a lot to the argument that it is a, it is a profound immunologic yeah. regulation. Yeah.
2: To, you know, the, to my mind, this is where w- it was in some ways the weakest part of the paper, because the assumption had been, as you, as you're saying, that, that the, the BCG is going to work in some way by modulating the immune system, um, because that seems to have been how it worked in mice, and that's why if this and humans, and that's why if this thing, this this observation about multiple sclerosis, you know, maybe not being cured but being you know remitting to some degree because of BCG, that has obviously got nothing to do with the Krebs cycle, right? right. That that's this is we're talking about I'm a totally different, yes, I have no idea, right? That's not about sugar metabolism. Multiple sclerosis does not as far as we know, have anything to do with
1: Could be as far as I know. aerobic
2: glycolysis. Yep, okay. I, I think that, that would be a stretch. And so the problem is that they went into this study assuming that there would be an immunologic tweak that would mediate this restoration of pancreatic islet function, but they did not find that. Well, they didn't make that final connection. They couldn't make that connection, right? right? That's where it broke down is that they, they, they actually, you know, they showed that the T regulatory cells which are involved in autoimmunity are, are altered in a way that might lead to, you know, create an environment that would allow the pancreatic islet cells to come back, but the pancreatic islet cells did not actually come back. And so when we're sort of thinking about like, well, what about type 2 diabetics? What about other conditions? This is where it gets a little right. bit dodgy because we've we've walked down a pathway that actually doesn't necessarily lead to these other conditions.
0: It could be that it's true, true, possibly related.
1: Yeah, yeah. So further research. More research is, is needed. needed. And I think <laughs> a lot of research, further Yuck. research is needed. All right. I want to move on because uh, in our second segment, we want to talk about something totally different. So have either of you done any research in your career that you now look back on and you are no longer convinced is correct? Well, I, almost all of it. Uh-huh. Yep. Chris? Uh, I'm just trying to figure out maybe, whether maybe I was to make convinced this to begin with. Do you have any that you're convinced is right?
2: Um, I have a few. But can't even think about that hard. Uh, convinced is right, like beyond a uh, no. No, no. Convinced no. is wrong. Convinced, convinced is, is wrong. wrong. No, but I, I I'm also, could, you know, open to the idea that there could be alternative explanations
1: for okay. things. So what, yeah. uh, what I want to talk about now is something that uh, I came across on Twitter, following folks that I follow in the the psych uh, research world, which is something called the what. You follow people in the psych research world? I follow a lot of people because there's some really fascinating things going on. In fact, a lot of things we've talked about on this podcast have come out of things that have been going on in the, the world of psychology research because they are going through this really interesting uh, state of methods re- renaissance. Huh, interesting. Uh, and so this is this is where this came from, which is something called the uh, Loss of Confidence Project. Um, and so I think we've talked a bit on this podcast before about a lot of the big changes that have been going on in the psych world around questionable research practices, something we talked about, QRPs, we talked about before. Um, And more recently, there's been some very high profile cases of research studies that were long taught as, as seen as the dogma that have now come up to be either problematic or falsified. So there's the marshmallow study, do you all know about the marshmallow no, 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 study? what is that? You don't know about the marshmallow study? Tell us oh, this some is more. Of a very famous study about um, that. Uh, I can't remember what it was done, the 70s or so in, in Stanford. It was a study that was done where you put kids in a room and you give them a marshmallow and you say, um, you can have, you uh, can have yeah. the marshmallow. Oh, yeah. Uh, but if you wait, I can't remember how long they tell them to wait, like 10 minutes. Uh, if you wait and don't have the marshmallow and you sit there with the marshmallow in front of you, I will give you two marshmallows. And they found that the kids who could wait dramatically predicted the rest of their lives, their success and the rest of their lives, only... This was And this was seen as dogma for a long time, and recently there was a, a replication study done, or, or I don't know if you call it a replication, but anyway, that it seems to be almost entirely explained by socioeconomic status of the mother that was not controlled for in the analysis. Um, there was also the Stanford prison experiment, which is another one I don't know as much detail about. Anyway, there's all these things going on, and then, of course, there was the power posing that we talked about. And it gets to this idea of what do we do if we have done research that we look back on. And now that we've developed more sophisticated methods, we come to believe may not actually hold up. Um, and uh, that is the idea of the Loss of Confidence Project. So it's been put together by, okay, uh, Tal Yarkoni, Christopher Chabris, and later joined Julia Rohrer. Um, and the basic idea is to destigmatize the idea of declaring loss of confidence. I'm reading from their website in one's own research finding, in this case, within the field of psychology. They're collecting statements of loss of confidence based on theoretical or methodological problems in one's research. Authors can submit a statement via their um, loss of confidence form. You can provide information about your study and why you think that it was. No no longer uh, you have confidence in the findings. And then I think the idea is then they're going to put this all together and write a paper, including all the authors, to truly talk about this idea of how we destigmatize losing confidence in one's own research as one understands the methodologies better and and comes to understand it. I thought it was a pretty fascinating idea. It's something that is not going on in our field. Mm -hmm. The question is, should it? Is this a good idea? And if so, do you think this is going to work? I think it's a great idea.
2: I don't know how well it's going to work, but the, why? Um, I think it is. A, it, it takes a lot of guts to um, to acknowledge that you believe something you published is 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 wrong. I think that's hard to do. Um, I think a lot, there's a lot of ego sort of wrapped around um, protecting or arguing for advocating for your scientific findings. So I think that's a that's going to be a huge
0: barrier. Um, but I think, but I think, I agree. I think it's a good idea. And, and and if we can accomplish it, I think it'll be a, a real boon for the profession because I think that that when we are recognized as being as objective as possible, um, that'll enhance the confidence in the work that we do. Because if you, you know, if if new evidence comes up that your theory. Is no longer relevant, then it's. I I think it's really part of the, you know, the the basic basic progress of science, to reevaluate what was proven before and 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 change your mind about it if there's new evidence. And I, and I think that that's what they're getting at. They're 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 I do. They're, I agree. They're, they're, they're really talking about those instances where. Um, your study could not be reproduced, even though you did it in the with the you know the highest of integrity and the highest you know it um, application of, of quality control. Sometimes it just it, it just doesn't happen. And mm-hmm. um, rather than coming forward and saying there was something duplicitous that I did or something you know somehow I cooked the. That's a different scenario. This is really as the as the context and circumstances evolve. The, the 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 thing that I was
1: I was bound to and adhered to previously is no longer is no longer correct. Mm-hmm. So so why not just retract the study? If that's the case, I mean, if we really have lost confidence in the research, why go to why go to this step of having a place where people can put their hand up and say I no longer have confidence in my research? Why wouldn't why wouldn't you just go the extra step of retracting the study?
0: Well, I think you could. I mean, I think that that's that's not necessarily. I I, I, I'm not sure whether they're proposing this. They're, they're
1: actually not. I mean, they specifically sort of don't tackle that question in their FAQs. They say, and you know, one of the FAQs is, if I put something into the Lost Confidence Project, will journals retract it? And they specifically say they don't know. You know, they don't, we can't say. Um,
0: but it's almost as, it's almost as if if it remains in this database, it's really in a backwater, and it's not going to help our generalized knowledge. Of that particular issue, it, it really, it, you know, really to become effectively diffused throughout the scientific literature, it should be retracted, if it's if it's in fact found to be incorrect now, mm-hmm. and looked correct twenty years ago, fifteen years ago, ten well, years ago.
2: Maybe maybe we should we should bring in the Cuddy Carney. Uh, Go for it. Um, so this is sort of the the poster child in a way for this issue. Um, This was a paper written by uh, Carney, Cuddy, and Yap, I think.
1: That sounds right. The third. Yeah. uh,
2: And they were researchers in the psychology department at the University of Columbia, and they had investigated this, this uh, theory were they all that um, I think at the time they were at, at Columbia. Okay. But they've all s- sort of since moved on to different uh, institutions. So there was this theory that by adopting powerful stances, you know, hands on your hips, sort of looking, you know, jaw squared, looking forward, that this would not only make you feel sort of more powerful, but would actually lead to physiological changes uh, manifested by increased testosterone levels and decreased levels of cortisol. And they measured these physiological changes before and after asking ind- individuals to to adopt uh, power poses,
1: Chris is in a power pose right I'm now. I'm in
2: a power pose. I'm jaw forward and looking steely like Bob Mueller. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> right, we're, we're not retracting nothing. So um, uh, so anyway, so this was should this we have a published. loss of confidence and,
1: in this podcast and this <laughs>
2: submission this, form? This power pose paper, um, which had a Sample size of 47, so it was a very small yep. study, became a very big deal and huge. led to la- basically launched the career of one of the three authors, uh, Amy Cuddy, who went on to to do a, a TED Talk, which has been downloaded 43 million times.
1: And wrote, wrote a book.
2: And wrote a book and is now a professor at Harvard and is like, you know, this was a this huge big deal. She made
1: be on me from Harvard.
2: But the problem was that subsequently... There was a, a much larger study by uh, Rosenstein, I think, who and they couldn't replicate it. It was the basic problem is they couldn't replicate it. And then a whole series of other follow-on power pose studies came out, and they could also not replicate it. And so Carney responded to this by basically saying, you know, in light of what we have now learned, I think that we were probably wrong with the original study, and um, here are the reasons why I think we were wrong. And these included, among other things, p-hacking, which she acknowledges straight up that they started with a sample size of X like 20 or 30 people and then they didn't find anything so they added on another 10 and they didn't find anything so they added on another five and voila they got a point of five and they published it you know and so that would fall into our our, our recurring bundle basket of qu- uh, questionable research QRPs. practices the corpse right. Um, and so she, she talks about this, and she said, you know, back back in the day, everyone was p-hacking, we thought we were just being efficient. But now we realize that this is like doing multiple interim analyses and waiting until you get a hit before you publish in the New England Journal of Medicine, which we see as being kind of, you know... Dodgy, dodgy, right, and so she went through this process, and yep. I and I thought that the the mea culpa that she offered was really quite frank and no, forthright. I, I thought it was excellent, um, and it was excellent, yeah. And, and so it, in that right, I was like, wow, you know, this this seems a very legitimate way of sort of saying, you know, this is what I thought, but now we see new data, and now I think something else. And, and
1: so, so, I I agree with you that I think it's I think what she did was excellent. I I think it reads, you know, it's a very clear explanation of what happened and why she no longer agrees with it. Um, the question is, was she in some way forced into this? And I, I, I'm not really so much interested in whether or not she was forced into it so much as it seems to me there was a big public controversy. She had to make a decision one way or the other. Was she going to support it or, or go against it? Whereas, you know, it seems to me the loss of confidence project is not about the the situ- situation where one is forced to make a decision. It's mm-hmm. about the situation where one comes to the own their own conclusion that I no longer have... Faith in my my previous work, and I want to raise my hand even though nobody is asking me to. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder whether that's going to work. I mean, the example that we have in front of us is an example where you had to do something one way or the other. You had to make a statement of, I support my research, I totally disavow it, or I'm unsure. But most research isn't put into this light and therefore isn't going to be forced to make a, a stand. And I wonder whether efforts like this are going to fall short because it's only going to be in the cases where people are have a, a really bright light shown upon them that people are going to make these decisions to say yes, I I retract, not retract, I I no longer support what I did previously, right. and I, I just wonder if it's going to work. Right.
0: Yeah, and if it's going to you know if it's if it's going to if it, if it has any hope of having the int- intended effect, as I said, it's there's got to be a link from the information presented in the lack of confidence website to Uh, the, you know, to PubMed or something so that, so that, you know, that reference comes up.
1: Yeah. So I think we all agree. Good idea in theory, whether or not it's going to work in practice and have the intended, uh, well, I I shouldn't say I know exactly what their intentions are, but whether or not it's going to move the needle uh, remains to be seen. Mm -hmm. We agree. Mm -hmm. All right. So then with that, let's move on to our third segment, our amazing and amusing. So this is where we want to highlight some of the things that make us love our jobs even more than we already do. I love my job, but this helps out a lot. Look at the weird and wacky things that happen in our field, according to Don, or the all-inspiring things that happen to Chris. Uh, who wants to? Who wants to go first? Chris, you you ready? Sure. You look like you're warming up. Sure. I'm just
2: doing my stretches. Um, I'm doing my power poses, in fact. Yeah.
1: So uh, this
2: is a little bit of an older study. Uh, it was published in 2007, so this is now 11 years old, um, but seemed really apropos uh, given the theme today. Okay. Which is, uh, it's, the title is called Persistence of Contradicted Claims in the Literature um, by Tatsioni Benitzis and our, 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 our man, John P.A. Ionides. <laughs> And the, the genesis of this is to ask the question, how does the scientific community respond when a popular meme, and then in, in this case, these are memes that were generated on the basis of observational data, is subsequently refuted by a very large randomized control trial. And so the three examples that they talk about are, the one, the belief that vitamin E supplementation is protective against cardiovascular disease. And there had been many, many... I guess decades, in fact, of observational studies that led to an overall estimation of a 50% reduction in cardiovascular mortality due to vitamin E. Um, and then there were several very large randomized control trials that blew this out of the water and, in fact, showed that there's about a 20% increase in cardiovascular disease due to vitamin E. So the question was, how quickly do people stop citing that those original data, Including the meta-analyses of the mm-hmm. observational study, mm-hmm. and and changed their tune to say, well, in fact, it appears based on this randomized control trial data that the you know that the opposite is true. And so they looked at um, what's called content citation, mm-hmm. meaning that they found the papers that had cited these original papers and then went and found those those um, actual citations to determine whether they were saying this is evidence in support of vitamin E preventing heart disease, or this is evidence against vitamin E. So, I mean, you can continue to cite the vitamin E... meta-analysis from the observational data. But the question is, how do you represent it? Do you mm-hmm. say, this has now been discredited, a or are you been continuing debunked. to say, it is true that vitamin E protects against heart
1: disease? Maybe we need a loss of confidence um, project. It, it,
2: it was very similar to yeah. that, in fact. And 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 so what they found, um, and they didn't just look at vitamin E, but I'll focus mainly on vitamin E. They also looked at beta-carotene and the use of hormone replacement therapy for prevention of Alzheimer's disease. And both of those oh. followed the same arc in that they had initially been assumed to be true based on observational data, followed by large random Randomized controlled trial that showed exactly the opposite, and then how quickly did these sort of extinguish from being cited in f- support of that original theory? And so, what they found w- in all three cases is that the, the scientific community does respond, but that the response is sluggish. Mm-hmm. That there, even in the years following, there's a, a a long time before the 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 you know the alternative, the the previous explanation or uh, the previous hypothesis is is being rejected routinely in the scientific literature, and sometimes over a, a decade, and then there is a split uh, in the kinds of journals that um, where the, the the flip to the more recent interpretation occurs, and it's interesting because it's I thought this was very counterintuitive that it is the the general medical journals that seem to be more flexible and change their opinions quickly, like mm. the JAMA's and the New England journals and, and the BMJ's of the world, they flip very fast in response to the new data, whereas is the medical specialty journals that seem to be re- particularly stubborn in this oh, regard, 100%. who hold on to the old beliefs. And, and I, they don't explain, explain why that is, but one wonders if it's because these are where many of these epidemiologic studies originated, you know, in the mm-hmm, first place. Mm-hmm. And so now we're looking at a, like a, a loss of confidence Confidence thing, or are people stubbornly holding on to their previous beliefs? And part of the, the the strength of their argument that that's probably true is that following the vitamin E study and following the hormone replacement therapy for prevention of, L, of of dementia study, there was a torrent of of sort of counter arguments that were thrown up against the RCT to try to bolster the original observational data, which seems completely backwards. You know, if we assume that there's a relative hierarchy in terms of of things likely to be true in clinical medicine. Um, sort of like expressing that stubbornness, and nearly yeah, cool. all of that backlash was coming out of the specialty journal editorials. Mm. It was really an interesting paper. But,
0: but I, I you know I think that also there needs to be a time for absorption, discussion, and conclusion. And you know, you say 10 years is a long time, but but you know, unless that the the, the conclusive study is a complete slam dunk and and just you know, kicks out of the water. All the other studies, there's going to be some debate and refinement. So that doesn't surprise me so much. No, you're, you're
2: absolutely right. I mean, it. it I, whenever I write a paper, I, I don't necessarily know all the things that have been published recently. So you're, you know, you're always a little bit vulnerable to okay. missing something that just happened that would change your opinion. But it is striking how slow this slowly this happened. So Seems pretty slow. looking at the vitamin E, the the pivotal study was published in the RCT was published in the year two thousand. Um, So in 1997, looking at the citations and the favorable versus unfavorable, in 97, 77% were saying that vitamin E prevents heart disease. And only like 2% were saying it doesn't. In 2001, the year after the the big RCT came out, those proportions changed to 57% favorable and 14% saying, no, it doesn't work. And it was only by 2005 that you approached a 50-50 mark in terms of the two sides roughly saying yes it does no it doesn't so um, almost a decade uh, to get to 50-50 to get to 50-50 oh well actually it's 5 years i should i sorry it's cuz it was five came years. out in 2 but still 5 years to get to almost 50-50 which is surprising yeah
1: surprising, surprising. yeah so, very cool
2: fascinating insight into our egos here
1: all right so i'm going to i'm going to go next and i'll let don back clean up even though there're only three of us So mine is intended to follow on to our uh, first discussion of the study of BCG for type 1 diabetes, although this relates more to type 2 diabetes. Uh, And this one was actually sent in by a listener, um, Louise Tangerman. I apologize if I mispronounced your name, but this was something that uh, she shared with me. Uh, And it came from uh, Significance, which is the... Official magazine uh, slash website of the Royal Statistical Society, and this was an article titled "Diabetes, Blood Sugar, and Red Wine: A Personal Study," and this was done by Martin Bland. Do you know Martin Bland? I know the name. He's a famous uh, statistician. He's done a lot of work with uh, Doug Altman. He retired as a uh, so I'm just going to read this part. A professor of Health Statistics at the University of York, following academic posts at St George and St Thomas Hospital Medical Schools. He was in industry, and he's co-authored almost 300 papers, many with Doug Altman. So he's a a well-known, famous statistician. He's a heavy hitter. Very heavy hitter. Um, And he uh, developed type 2 diabetes and was managing his type 2 diabetes and as a statistician was also then therefore collecting all this data Mm -hmm. on himself and starts to then track the information and starts to do some data analysis on himself. But then at one point, uh, his wife, who, likes to keep, who he likes to keep informed of his sugar level, remarked one day that she thought that his blood glucose seemed to be a bit lower on mornings after he had had a drink. And therefore, he decides to do uh, an analysis to figure out whether drinking, uh, in fact, help him. So he does this analysis. He finds that there was uh, a difference in mean glucose comparing red wine minus no red wine days equal to a small amount. I'm not going to read the amount. Um, Therefore, And he's got a pretty good confidence interval around it, significant p-value if you care about that sort of thing. That, therefore, includes thus we have good evidence for a relationship between red wine and glucose, which we uh, estimate to be lower on average by between 0.06 and 0.51, what is it, millimole per liter on days after drinking. So a small effect, but the effect does appear to be real. He then sort of, you know, writes this up and the the, uh, the significance, he says, um, I wonder whether it would be feasible to do a trial to establish whether the short-term red wine effect was in fact causal, because of course there are all kinds of ways in this study you could have confounding. He said, in principle, I could randomize myself to drink on some days, but not on others. However, I think that this would be unlikely to work. I have a social life and I am honestly not that dedicated to this particular search for knowledge. I suspect that I would be even less likely to be able to randomize others to drink or not to drink on given days. Perhaps there is an animal model. Like most nutritional risk factors, red wine and glucose is hard to study, as we (laughs) well know. And then I will just end with his final thought, which is, for myself, I continue to record my blood glucose. I have added other data, the uh, the type of other alcohol, the number of drinks, and some information about food consumption and exercise. And, of course, I shall drink red wine as usual. After all, it appears to be rather good for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Which I thought was great. That's really we good. call that the bland effect. We will we'll call it exactly that. It's the perfect end-of-one no, experiment. I, just thought was a I love it. Great end-of-one study. All right, I yeah, mean... It's great.
0: After, after... <laughs> Two, two uh, articles of such erudition. Uh-huh. I, I, I feel like I, I need to bring the bar down. Which bodily down. function are we going to talk about today, Don? <laughs> <laughs> a little lower. <laughs> no, this is not a bodily function. So okay. what I'm going to do is I'm going <laughs> to... You have a phone out. Are you going to play something for no, us? No, no, I just forgot the oh, okay, reference, great. so I just need to read the reference off my phone. But um, Happy No, emerging. this is an article that I found from the psychology literature. Oh, well done. Your domain, Matt. Um, Francis T. McAndrew and Sarah Kenke... Um, in New Ideas in Psychology, published a paper on the nature of creepiness.
1: Oh yeah, Ooh. on the nature of creepiness. Right.
0: So they're they're saying that you know the, the perception of creepiness is pervasive in a lot of different cultures.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, but there's no I'm creepiness some construct. Of it right in this room. There's no creepiness construct. We don't really know how to define creepiness. We don't. And what goes into the definition of creepiness? Why would one person perceive something as creepy and the other person, they, they said there's no prior research, therefore this is a study exploratory in nature. They did snowball sampling through invitations to Facebook events created by researchers aimed at student faculty and staff at liberal arts colleges in the Midwest. And they posed a question to the, uh, the subjects, which was, imagine a close friend of yours whose judgment you trust. Now imagine that this friend tells you that she or he just met someone for the first time and tells you that the person was creepy. And they asked a series of questions um, with respect to different pat. They they, uh, asked forty-four different patterns of behavior, twenty-one different occupations, and a list of hobbies that people thought might
1: be associated with this person.
0: That that they yeah that this person would admit to that they thought was creepy. Um, And so, ninety-five percent thought that. creepiness was more likely to be associated with male gender mm-hmm. than female gender. And yep. that's both the men and the women. That sounds right. Um, and, and probably the one that is at the top of the list is steering the conversation <laughs> towards sex. Was, <laughs> was considered to be creepy. I'm the, I'm first meeting this person, yeah, that that is creepy. Okay. but the other characteristics the first were them, that yeah, the person stood too close. Yeah. That's creepy. The person had greasy hair, oh, yeah. oh. had a peculiar smile, <laughs> Had, yeah. had bulging eyes and long fingers. Kind
2: of like Un- Nosferatu.
0: Yeah, kind of. Uh, unkempt hair, very pale skin, dressed oddly, and licked his or her lips frequently. Yeah, that always
1: weirds me out when people do that. Um, and then as I, far feel as, like, I feel like I'm 50-50 on this list.
0: Yeah, it could be. Um, the person would laugh at unpredictable times. And then as far as far hobbies, <laughs> as far as hobbies were concerned... It was. <laughs> that does seem to be a theme through all these podcasts. I don't know what you mean, Don. Yeah. Uh, the hobbies that were considered to be creepy were collecting hobbies. In particular, if <laughs> a person admitted to collecting dolls, insects, oh, reptiles, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. or body parts <laughs> such, what as, now? such as teeth, bones, or fingernails oh, were considered to that be is especially creepy. creepy. Um, and the second most frequently mentioned creepy hobby, hobby involves some variation of watching, following or taking pictures of people, especially children. Yeah, that's was thought to be creepy. I guess creepy. And bird watchers of all things were considered creepy by many as well. Bird watchers. Bird
2: watchers. Now weird, like where would people be <laughs> that they would see bird watchers and be creeped out by that? Or is it that there people who they think, know. Just think so it's voyeuristic, in I guess, what are they doing?
0: you know, they're just like so, looking at at birds in the trees. During mating season. I don't know.
1: A lot of that rings true. And a lot of that (laughs) makes me think I should go and reevaluate my own behavior. There's a few things on there that I, when I, so I. Maybe you should
0: shorten your fingers.
1: I will just tell you the story. When I was. Did you collect pigeons? No. When I was, uh, when I had my wisdom teeth taken out, they gave me uh, sodium pentothal and, and Valium. And uh, Before apparently, Ooh, to to your dentist. <laughs> <Before>. <laughs> and apparently, and I don't remember this, I got up after the, the surgery and I was wandering around the doctor's office asking them for my teeth. I needed my teeth because I wanted to make a necklace. I'd wear wow. it if I were you, Matt. Wow. So I don't know. Do I collect body parts? That I don't know. Wow. wow. Okay. Well, that. So now we have a definition for creepiness. That is That is actually a
0: really take, cool study. Pretty take good to
1: the subway. That's pretty impressive actually. Cuz you well it's, done. it's
2: basically saying you there is no definition but when you see it you,
0: you know, know it. when you see it. <laughs> right. But well, well now we have now we have a framework. Like a creepiness that. framework. That it takes us advanced.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, that is the ending of our program. So if you've got any feedback on this or any other episodes or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at @pophealthyx, or you can tweet me at @profmadfox. <laughs> <laughs> Stop doing that. <this>. Or Chris <laughs> at I need a kill Or done. And a... see, what I'm most worried about is the listeners can't necessarily tell us apart by voice, <laughs> and no one knows. I suppose they probably assume it's not me, but. That's Chris, just so everybody knows Uh, So, uh, where was I? We want to thank Leslie Talali, Director of Lifelong Learning at BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast and Nick Guler for sound and editing Thanks for joining us, we hope you enjoyed it and we hope you download the next episode